Um, they think it was a reaction with that medication and antibiotics she was on and another prescription medication that she's on that, that caused that complication. They have ruled out any congenital or hereditary heart problems at this point. Um, but she seems to be doing good. Um, we saw her just a little bit ago. She's going to be there for another couple of days at least. So if any of you all know her well enough that you want to visit her, she's in room 242 um, there at South Oklahoma City. So that was, that was kind of a, a neat coincidence. This is the first time I have been here. I've been here once for a funeral. Uh, several years ago, um, I have something in common with you. My life has been scarred by Donnie Deathridge, just like you. Um, so that, that is my connection to, uh, to Choctaw. Um, yes, let's pray, let's pray about that, that we may all be healed. So, uh, really, am, really am glad to be here. Donnie's a friend of mine. Don't hold that against me. Um, I know him through my wife, so you can hold that against her. Um, as we begin tonight, and we talk about Galatians... <clears throat> To dive into that, I want to I pose this question to you all, and a little bit of feedback would be great. We live in a society that promotes you can be anything you want to be and do anything you want to do. Do, do you believe that? Is that true? Let me phrase it this way. If I decided I wanted to be a racehorse jockey, I'd have a hard tough time with that, wouldn't I? If my wife decides she wanted to play in the WNBA, she's five foot four. Probably not real likely. But we live kind of in a society that promotes you can do anything you want to do if you put your mind to it because you're that good. The book of Galatians shoots that idea all the way down. Because honestly, church, we're not good enough to do very much. But Jesus is good enough to do it all. And that's what Galatians is all about. So if you have your Bibles with you, whether it's the electronic version or you have the old style version like I do, let's, let's flip over to Galatians. I'm going to do this probably a little bit backward tonight. Instead of talking for 40 or 45 minutes to, t- to get to what the lesson, main lesson from Galatians is, I'm going to tell you what I believe the main lesson from Galatians is, and then we're going to discuss it for the rest of the evening. And I don't see a clock in here. I don't know who your elders are, but you need to talk to the elders at Northridge. (laughs) Let's begin in Galatians uh, chapter 2. Galatians is an interesting book written by Paul. And you see a side of Paul that you see it a few other times in Scripture, but you really get to see a man of fire and passion from the book of Galatians. And he is upset when he begins this book. He is very upset. And he spends chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2 doing what I believe building up to the main lesson from Galatians, which I believe takes place the last half of chapter 2. He tells you what the main purpose of the book is. And then he spends the rest of the book diving into this is how his main lesson applies and how it affects the life of Christians. And so let's begin here in chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. I'm reading from the ESV translation. Um, so if it's a little bit different than what you're, what you're reading from, uh, you know where I'm coming from here. Beginning of verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. <clears throat> I'm going to give you what the main point of the sermon is tonight, then you can go home. And that is, the main point of Galatians is, is that we are justified by faith. Now, 
You don't, don't go home yet, because I've got a few more things I want to say. I want you to focus in here on these first three verses, verses 15, 16, and 17. We haven't read 17 yet, but I want you to see something here very quickly. Unless you are using a New American Standard Bible, and maybe, maybe some of you are using that tonight, I don't really agree with the translation here. Now, I, I don't want to bash translators because they have an extremely difficult job. And I'm certainly not qualified to be a translator. I will say that up front. Um, translators deal with a lot of different difficulties. They deal, with, they deal with a problem, though, in trying to translate literally what the Scripture says from the original text and trying to make it understandable for us and looking at the context in which that was stated and putting it in such a manner in which we can understand it. And that may sound like an easy job, but to try to do that with a 2,000-year gap and all the different societies that have taken place from then till now is an extremely difficult job. And so I'm not bashing them, okay? Don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing them. But I think there's something we need to understand about this passage that will really help us get Paul's true meaning. Let's again look at verse 15. Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now, I believe that Scripture is inspired word for word. But there is a word in this verse that is not there in the original. Anybody here have any idea which one that is? little three-letter word, T-H-E. It is not there. In fact, you will see the phrase, works of the law, or you will see the phrase, the law, throughout the book of Galatians over and over and over again. Except in a few very select passages, the word the, the article the, is not found in the original. It's not there. Now, Paul does include it in a couple of specific places. And I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 19. This is one of the specific places in which he includes it. And I believe he does so on purpose. Verse 19, he says, Why then the law? Now, church, when you read in your New Testament that phrase, the law, what do you think of? What specifically comes to mind? The law of Moses, right? Paul includes here in verse 19 when it says, Why then the law? The article the is there in the original. It's there on purpose. Because Paul is asking specifically, why then did God give the law of Moses? But when we back up to chapter 2, verses 15 all the way through verse 21, and really throughout the majority of the book of Galatians, when you see the phrase the law in the original, the is not there. And here's why that's important. The law of Moses was a specific law. But Paul is not just saying we're not justified by the law of Moses. Paul is saying we are not justified by a law system, period. Now, here's the significance to that. You may say to yourself, look, I know the law of Moses was done away with. I don't try to keep the Ten Commandments in order to go to heaven. But you may in your own mind have worked up some sort of law system from the New Testament in which you think will get you to heaven. Paul says that is not the case. Read again with the beginning of verse 16. From here on out, as I read this passage, I will leave the word the out. Here's what Paul says from the original, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but that through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law. Because by works of law, no one will be justified. You see, it's very easy in this context, and I understand why the translators do it, to jump to this and say, well, Paul is saying that we're not justified by keeping the law of Moses because we have a new set of rules to keep instead of those Ten Commandments and the other 600 and some odd laws that went with it. But that is not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, you used to try to be justified by a law system known specifically as the law of Moses, but God has done away with that, and he has a whole different way of making you right with him. You see, when we see that word justified, we kind of get this mystified feeling. All that that means is, is to be made right. Who in here does not want to be right in the eyes of God? Good, no hands. We're doing well. If you want to be right before God, the way to do it is not to find a set of rules that you think you can keep good enough to be right with Him. Does that scare you a little bit? It used to scare me really badly, and I'll tell you why. Because that means that I'm not in control. I am not in control. I'm a control freak. Is there a few of you here with us tonight that are that way? I see fingers doing this. I don't see any doing this. We like to control our own destiny, right? We want to be given a set of rules that if I do all this just like this, if I follow this recipe just perfectly, I'm going to get exactly what I want. And that is great in every area but religion, in every, other, in every area but relationship. Tell me how well your marriage works if you say, look, honey, I will love you if you do everything right all the time. Doesn't work well, does it? God has come to you, and we'll see this in a minute in Galatians, and he says, I don't want you to be my slave. I want you to be my son. There is a reason for that. Because God does not work with you trying to justify you and make you right in his eyes based upon your ability to get everything right all the time. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, you're, then you're saying obedience isn't important. That's not all what I'm saying. Obedience is certainly a part of the Christian life. What I'm saying is you do not get right with God because you can do it all right. That is important, extremely important. i got to get off of that soapbox and move on, or I'll be here for three or four hours. So let's talk a little bit about, um, let's look at verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. Paul, in, his, uh, in this section here, verses 15 through 21, is where I believe Paul states the purpose of the book of Galatians, which is justification by faith. And then he breaks it down. Notice what he says here. Uh, let's begin at verse 17 and go on through. He says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners in Christ, then a servant of sin, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. All right, quick summation. Paul is saying that if he went back to the law of Moses, which is something he had said was done away with, he was, he was proving himself to be a sinner. Now look at verse 18, or verse 19. For through the law, Actually, the word these, not there. For through law, I died to law. Paul is saying that he tried to keep a rule system. And he finally came to the realization from keeping that, trying to keep that rule system and then finding Jesus, that Jesus wanted him to die to rule systems. 
Who in here is uncomfortable with that? I'm uncomfortable with that. But that's what Paul says. He says, from this law, trying to keep the law of Moses, I learned that I couldn't do it. Folks, have you figured out tonight that you cannot keep all of God's rules all the time? If you haven't, you haven't learned much of Christianity yet. He goes on. He says, not only that I died to law, but he says, I did so so that I might do what? Live to God. Church, understand something. You cannot live for God and to please Him when you are more caught up in His rules than in His relationship and His purpose. Now, that might sound contradictory, but it's certainly not. Do you remember when Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and He talked about the, that they had left the weightier matters of the law undone? They had got so caught up in all those little rules that they had forgot about what God was all about to begin with. Part of living for God is understanding that, yes, He has rules, and yes, we try to follow those rules, but that those rules and our ability to do them right all the time are not what make us right with Him. They are not what justify us. We cannot come before God on Judgment Day and say, Lord, you got to let me in because look at the list of all the things I did right. You can't come before God on the Judgment Day and say, Lord, I had everything doctrinally perfectly correct Therefore, you have to let me in. You know why that is? Because you will never get it all right. You won't. Peter tells uh, people of his day when he writes in the third chapter, verse 18, I think it is, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Church, growth means that you admit you don't have it all figured out and you're in the process of trying to improve that. And growth doesn't stop when you've been a Christian 10, 15, 20, or 30 years. At least it better not. That is why rule-keeping and following a law cannot be where we try to find our justification. So where do we find it? If it's not in us being caught up trying to keep all these rules, and and by doing that and doing it correctly, that makes us right, where then do we find justification? Let's read on. He says, I've died to law that I might live to God. Then notice this, verse 20. This, is, I think, is one of those passages in which, unfortunately, we have missed context a lot of times. Not always, but sometimes we miss context, and I think we miss the power here. Because Paul is saying, I no longer seek to justify myself by doing everything right, but I now live for God. And that resulted in this, Paul says, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now let's consider the context for a minute. Paul says, I had lived my life by rules, by law, trying to be right with God. And he said, I realized that wasn't going to work, and so I had to die to law. And then he comes here to verse 20, and he uses this interesting terminology about, it's no longer I who live, but it's Jesus who live, and I've crucified myself. What is he talking about? What he's talking about is he has died to the expectation that he can be good enough on his own, to keep all God's rules in order to be right with him. I have died, he says. Used to, it was all Paul saying, I have the ability to follow this law system. He says, but I've learned through trying to do that, that I failed. 
And I've learned that there is no justification by me being good enough to keep all God's rules. Now again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying obedience doesn't matter. But what we're talking about is justification. Being right with God. Paul says, I've learned that by trying to keep God's rules, I cannot do it good enough to be right with Him. So I died to that concept. Church, part of dying to yourself is admitting you're not good enough. I think sometimes as Christians come to God thinking we're good enough. Look at what all I've sacrificed for you, Lord. Ever had that thought? Look at how much I've given up for you. Look how much more I do than other people. Paul says, no. I died to myself so that I might find justification in Jesus and in faith in him. Let's go on. I can't camp out here too long. He goes on, he says in verse uh, in 21, but it's Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. Notice this, he says, I live by faith, no longer by law. Paul is saying, I have done away with the concept that I can do it all right enough to be right with God. I no longer live that way, but I live by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, I live my life now because I trust in Jesus to save me. That sounds a little too easy, but it also sounds a little scary. We all like to have a little control over our own destiny, don't we? Isn't it more comfortable to say, well, yeah, Jesus is going to save me, but I have something to do with it too? Isn't that more comfortable? It's more uncomfortable to say, the only reason that I will get through the gates of heaven is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. That is scary, but it is 100% biblical. You cannot do enough on your own to get there. And he goes on in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. And this is what's so dangerous and what's so bad about the idea of trying to be justified by keeping a set of rules, by by trying to be right with God, by saying, I've done enough right. Is that it's as if you come to God and God's offering you the blood of Jesus and grace and saying, I'm going to let you in if you just trust me. And you just try. And you say, you know what? I don't need that. I'm good enough without it. I think that hurts God's feelings a little. I think that hurts his feelings a little bit. And that's what Paul is saying. When we adopt the mentality that I have a a rule system and that by keeping this rule system, it's going to make me right with God, it's as if we say to God, I don't need your grace. Paul says, I don't nullify the grace of God. Notice this. For if righteousness, that is being right with God, were through law, not just the law of Moses, what were through any law system, then Christ shouldn't have died at all. Church, Jesus came and died because that is the only way you and I stand a chance. That's it. We oftentimes talk about the old law and why God did away with it. The fact of the matter is, it's not because the law of Moses was not good enough or not powerful enough. It's because we aren't. 
We need something better. We need something more intervening than rules to be right with God. We need someone to intervene personally, not for God to say, here's rules, keep them good enough and maybe we'll let you in. That's what Galatians is about. Doing away with the mentality that there's a set of rules and that I can live up good enough to meet that set of rules enough to make God happy. God has sought us out as his children before we ever kept a single one of his rules. I want you to think about that. As we read through the book of Galatians and we, and we see the fruits of the Spirit and things come, come up, the ways that we're supposed to live and let the Spirit work on us, and the way that the Spirit sanctifies us through our, our belief in Jesus, before we get to that in the book of Galatians, we see in chapter 3 and chapter 4 this terminology of sonship and heirs and that God has sought us out to adopt us. Remember, Paul writes in the book of Romans that while we were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for us. Before you ever made a move to do anything that made God happy, God made a move first. Because you cannot be justified by doing enough good things to make God happy. You're justified through the blood of Jesus. And until we as a people embrace that wholeheartedly, we're going to be stuck. And let's talk for a few minutes about where we're going to be stuck. What's, uh, what's one of the negative things about uh, trying to be justified by works? I think there's a lot of them, but I want to talk for a little bit about the idea of lacking confidence. I personally believe this is one of the, one of the most um, detrimental things that's going on in the body of Christ today. I call it salvation anxiety. And, and I feel like personally that I'm qualified to talk about it because I used to be absolutely terrified of judgment. Absolutely terrified. I was raised in a Christian home from the very point of birth. I have attended the Church of Christ from the time I can remember until current. I can remember when I was a child, about 9 or 10 years old, my mom asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I told her I wanted to be a preacher. And she was so proud. But the underlying reason I wanted to be a preacher is because I felt like currently I wasn't good enough for God, and so if maybe if I was a preacher, then I would be good enough, and maybe he would accept me. It not work that way, does it, Marty? Mike? He doesn't know a lot of preachers, did I? <laughs> so I'm going I'm to ask a probing question. And, and if you're not 100% honest with me or you don't want to be that up front, that's okay. I understand. I've been there. How many of you are not as secure in your salvation as you would like to be? Okay. Do not feel bad. On a scale of 1 to 10, about three years ago, I'd have been a 2. Did you know the New Testament talks a lot about confidence and assurance and knowing that you're saved? Now, if the Bible is so replete with that, especially the book of Hebrews and the book of 1 John, I believe it's in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer says that we should be in such a condition that we are awaiting with boldness and excitement the return of Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but up until recently, the idea of Jesus returning didn't excite me that much. I was like, you know what, can we put that off a week or two? I've got a few things that I'm not quite got right yet, or I'm not sure. This is one of the biggest reasons why people in the body of Christ lack confidence. It's because they are still operating off a works-based faith. 
They are still saying to themselves, I'm not sure I've got this right. I've still got this struggle in my, in my life. I, I spoke to my wife in a rude manner last week. And, you know, I might not be right with God. That is coming from someone who is working off the basis of, I don't have everything right yet, and so I'm not right yet with God. Ever feel that way? Maybe a little? Do you ever go through life and you, and you, and you look at other Christians and other, other people in the body of Christ and say, man, look at all the things that they're doing. Look at, look at all the ways they serve Jesus. And maybe I'm not good enough because they're doing more than me. Guess where that comes from? Workspace faith. You're looking at other people and all the things they're doing, and you're saying, oh, they must be earning their way to heaven, and I'm not doing as much as they are, so therefore I haven't earned my way yet. How about that sin in your life that you struggle with and you've struggled with for years? I'm not talking about the sin that you just say, well, you know what, God's going to just have to get over it. I'm talking about the one that you fight. Do you feel condemned because you still struggle? You haven't fully embraced justification by faith. God does not expect you to be perfect. I think Peter's a great example of that. I love Peter. That guy made some horrible, nasty boo-boos in life. I love John chapter 21 and the reconciliation of Jesus and Peter. I wish I had time tonight to preach that whole sermon. I honestly believe, again, that one of the biggest problems in the body of Christ today is the lack of confidence. I'll give you an example of why. I baptized a young man when I was preaching in Lindsay a few years ago. And he had been raised in a Christian home. He had been baptized when he was about 13. And he had gone into the world when he got to high school. Um, drugs, alcohol, you name it. Pretty much he had done it. And he came to me one, one Sunday night after a sermon. He said, I know my life's not right. And I want to get right with God again. But I'd, I, don't, I don't know where to begin. And I said, well, why did you leave in the first place? His exact words to me were, the standard that I was taught, I never could live up to, and I know I never will be. So I gave up. You know what? God's standard is unattainable. Because it is there to show us our sin. That is not reason to not try to, to live according to God's rules and according to God's standard. But it is unattainable. No one can live sinless and perfect. Jesus was the only one that pulled that off. And so when we work off of this mentality that I'm going to be right because I get everything right, when we finally come to the realization, I don't have it all right, I'm still struggling, and I don't see any hope of ever getting it all right, what's the natural reaction? I just give up. I just give up. Hebrews talks about that. The Hebrew writer says that we need to hold fast to our confidence. Sadly, many of us don't have confidence to hold on to because we're still trying to please God, thinking that He works off of a rule system like He did under the law of Moses. And if you want to honestly, you want to read the Old Testament, you see grace all throughout it. But we are still trying to make God see that we're good enough. And God came to us when we weren't good enough and said, I will give you Jesus and he will make you good enough. But until we embrace that, we will live in fear. We will live in dread of the day that we die or that Jesus returns. I heard a guy not too long ago talk about he was visiting with a, 
an, old, an older lady, she was on her deathbed. She had been a faithful member of, of that particular congregation for years and years and years. And she was talking to him. She said, oh, I'm just so afraid that I'm not ready. And he finally looked at her and said, Sweetheart, you're going to heaven. Get over it. That's kind of what we need to hear. Embrace Jesus and get over the fact you have faults. Because God is not going to accept you because you are faultless. He's going to accept you because you put faith in Jesus and you trust in him. And again, my purpose tonight is not to talk about obedience. Obedience certainly fills in. So the fact that I don't talk about that doesn't mean that I don't believe in it. But that is not where we find our justification. We find our justification in faith. In other words, that we trust in God and we trust in Jesus to save us. Okay, let's I'll get off that soapbox and move on to another one. What does justification by faith look like? How does that look? Let's look over to chapter 4 of Galatians. There is so much in this book when we talk about justification by faith and what that looks like. I'm just going to hit the highlights for some of my favorites. Um, some of the ones that maybe I haven't heard taught as much, but I think are very powerful. And, and this is one of them. Galatians chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 1. I was going to begin in verse 6, but let's begin in verse 1. Uh, we'll go through 1 through 7. So let's talk about the first one here. One of the first realizations or one of the first things that justification by faith looks like is it looks like God stepping in, someone that used to be our enemy, that we were terrified of, who was our judge, stepping in and saying, I'm going to be your father. Verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, Jesus, or God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Church, I want you to hear something from Paul here. He says that something had to happen in order for us to be adopted. And that was that God sent his son. But notice that he says this. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul is saying that if you choose to be under a law system, you are forfeiting what? Sonship. You ever thought of it that way? If you choose to say, God, I'm going to get to heaven, but I'm going to get there by being able to keep all these rules good enough for you to like me. He's going to say, okay, you're not my kid. Who here wants to make that, have that conversation with God? I don't. Notice what he goes on to say here. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's what justification by faith looks like. I know we oftentimes talk about, and we have terminology in Scripture, that we are the servants of God. We are the servants of Jesus Christ. I'm not denying that. But I want to impress this point upon you. When God sent Jesus to die for us, and he set up this plan of justification by faith, he did not do all of that so that he could build a slave army. He did that so that he could adopt a bunch of kids. 
Look at verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. I'll give you another Bible passage maybe to help you understand this. I think probably most of you in here know the story of the prodigal son. He goes away and he wastes his father's or his inheritance from his father on righteous living, and he comes back, and his dad is standing waiting for him, and he embraces him and gives him a hug. Now, the son has had a plan before he came home. He comes to himself in the pig pen, and he says, I will go home to my father, and I will say, Father, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven, and I'm not worthy of you. I I ask that you would just please hire me back as one of your servants. At least then, if I do that, I'll have something to eat, he thinks to himself. But what does his father say, or rather, what does his father do when he comes home? He comes home and he rehearses everything that he has planned. Everything that he's rehearsed beforehand, he tells his father, Father, I'm not worried to be your son. Just hire me as a servant and I'll work for you. And what does the father do? He does not even acknowledge the speech. He does not even acknowledge the speech. But he puts a robe on him, he puts a ring on his hand, and he brings him in, he throws a feast. Church, God doesn't want slaves. He wants sons. Isn't that exciting? Amen? Amen. God doesn't want a bunch of slaves who are terrified of him and only serve him out of fear. He wants children who realize they have been sought out of evil and sin to trust in him and love him. And that's what justification by faith does. Because we are children that know we're not good enough but know that God loves us anyway. And therefore, we can be his adopted children. I want you to look here at verse 6. He says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I don't want to get into a big theological discussion tonight about Abba, Father, and, and, and everything that means. There's, there's a couple different sides to that. But I do want to give, relate to you a little story. I, I use this when I do it. I have a couple of series of teaching I do on confidence and how Christians can build confidence. And I love this one. I love the the idea of God coming in through the Spirit and we can cry out, Abba, Father. And there's a story I read not too long ago about a minister and his wife who had decided they wanted to adopt a couple of boys over in Russia. And part of that adoption process was you had to fly to Russia. And so they flew over there and, and they were walking through the orphanage and they had not met these two little boys yet. They were both about one. I believe they were twins. And uh, as we were walking through this orphanage, the smell was just horrid, just just horrible. But the most terrifying thing that this uh, particular minister said was the silence. The entire orphanage is filled with children and is deathly silent. And they they walk on in the room and they they turn into this particular room where the two boys were. And and there were several children in their toddlers. And you could hear the cribs creaking from them, rocking back and forth. But there was not a sound. And this minister said that the contrast was eerie comparing that to their nursery back home in their church. And so they visited with the boys and they read to them some stories. And they did this off and on for about four or five days throughout the week until it was time for them to go home. So they spent four or five days interacting with the boys, deathly quiet every day. The last day after they had played with the boys and it was that time in which this particular minister and his wife had to go home. And the wife being in tears, understandably, having to leave the boys. As they got up and they walked out of the room, just as they were to step out the door, there was a blood-curdling scream from one of the two boys. And this particular minister said, at that point, 
he realized what Abba Father meant. Because that child had been an orphan, but realized now he was no longer. He now had a father. And that cry, that, that primal feeling inside came out. There's someone here to care for me. And that's what God is doing for us if we will accept justification by faith and allow His Spirit to sanctify us, He wants us to feel like His kids. You know, sometimes I'm a little bit too hard on my boys and my little girl. I'm one of those parents that's a little bit too much of a dictator, still working on that, hoping the Spirit can sanctify me there a little bit, make me a little better parent. But I certainly hope that my kids know they might need a little bit of respect for me to be afraid when they do something wrong, but not enough that they have to run and hide. Not enough that they have to be terrified that I'm going to strike them dead because they forgot to make their bed this morning. I hope they know that I love them enough that no matter how they mess up, as long as they're willing to try to do better, I'm there for them. I think that's how God wants us to feel. We are his kids. Yes, you're a slave of Jesus Christ, but you are God's kid. Does that resonate with you? I hope so. All right. That was point one of about 17 I got, so that first bell is my 30-minute warning, right? Okay. Guess not. Moving on. Let's talk about uh, obedience versus grace very quickly. This whole idea of justification by faith is a grace concept, Okay. It's, it's one, of the, one of the small parts of grace, but it's a grace concept. The idea that God is going to give you salvation and you don't deserve it. In fact, he's going to give you salvation and you basically did nothing for it. Okay? Yes, baptism. Yes, faith. But you really did nothing for it. Okay? And you may be sitting here tonight and you're saying, well, Brandon, this all sounds good. I love this. But doesn't the Bible teach obedience? Yes, it does. Well, Brandon, you said that we're not justified by law and we shouldn't try to be, but doesn't God have rules? Yes, he does. God certainly has rules. There's no doubt about that. So how do those two things work together? Let me try this analogy. Again, I'm a pretty strict parent, and we have a lot of rules in our house. But when my children break one of those rules, two of those rules, ten of those rules, They don't cease to be my children. Now, is that how we view our relationship with God? Or do we struggle with, I broke God's rule today. I'm not sure that he likes me anymore. Do you ever go through a cycle of, man, I'm really on fire for God. I'm doing everything I can to be right with God. To something happens. Maybe I let sin in my life. Maybe I just got busy and I'm not as dedicated as I was. And you you go through that cycle, and when you get to that point, all of a sudden you start to feel no longer approved by God. When I was up here and I was on fire, I was approved. But now I got busy or something came in my life. I messed up somewhere. Maybe I'm not praying as much as I should be. And now I'm no longer, I don't feel approved by God. And after a little while, the guilt just builds up so much that I rededicate myself to God. And okay, I feel a little bit better. Do you go through that cycle? The cycle of approved, disapproved, rededication, and approved. 
If you do that, that's okay. There's a lot of people that do. But let me tell you this. That is not God's plan. Okay? I'm just being frank with you. That's not the way God intends it. God does not intend for you to feel like you have fallen out of sonship. You're still his kid. Are you okay with that? It's kind of hard when you've been focusing so much on rules to accept the fact that when I break one of God's rules, he hasn't disowned me. Do you realize that when we look through Scripture at the way that we are described our relationship with God, we have parent-child relationship, we have marital relationship, we have friend relationship, all described in the New Testament. Because God is trying to get something across to us. He is not looking for slaves. He's looking for sons. Because He wants a relationship, not something that's based all the rules you can keep. And don't we want that in all of our other relationships? In our marriages, don't we want our spouse to love us in spite of the fact sometimes we're just unlovable? Don't we want our kids to love us when we've been a jerk today? And isn't God better than us? That's what God wants. God can love you in spite of your imperfections. He wants you to have that confidence. Now, that doesn't erase obedience. Can we fall from grace? Absolutely. Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. Guess what the context is? You who seek to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. One of the quickest ways to fall from being liked by God is to decide, you know what? I don't need justification by faith. I can do it on my own. The New Testament is replete with that. That is the quickest way to lose God's approval. You can lose God's approval by saying, you know what, I don't care about God's rules. I'm going to live any way that I want. But I suspect that since you're here tonight, you're at least making an attempt to do what God wants you to do. And I assume tonight that since you're here, you're at least trying to live by what you believe God's standard is. You may be failing sometimes, but you're trying. That's what God asks you to do. He asks you to try. He asks you to put faith in in Him, that He can save you in spite of your failings. Just go try. That's all I ask you to do. Thank you for your time this evening. It's been fun. Hope to see you again.